Good day, everyone, and welcome again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week I take you on a journey back in time to 50 years ago, and we report on what was going on in the hockey and sporting worlds during that time. We're back this week with news from February 2nd to 9th, 1970. All the work we put into this would not be possible without the help we get from our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the largest online newspaper archive on the planet, and they've been instrumental in allowing us access to all the newspapers in hockey land of the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in Port Coburn, Ontario. They are makers of outstanding craft beers, many of which are from recipes from the town's first brewery, which was located there in the late 1800s. They also serve the best pub food around with delicious gourmet burger and pizza specials each week, some amazing creations put together by the team in their kitchen. If you're in the Niagara region, give me a call and we'll have a beer at the break wall. In last week's show, some of the stories we discussed were St. Louis Blues trainer Tommy Woodcock discussing uh, his views on hockey equipment of the 1970s. We tried to answer the question, do the Canucks finally have their top hockey man? In our personality of the week segment, we got to know Penguins rookie Michelle Briere a little better. This week, We've got a whole new set of issues to talk about, and some of these include a surprising poll by Hockey Pictorial Magazine on where other NHL players ranked the defensemen in the NHL. There were some facts regarding the professional relationship between Joe Crozier and Punch Imlac that came uh, out in Vancouver, and this all but guaranteed the Crow isn't going to be running any Vancouver NHL franchise. And we'll discuss if in the 21st century, should the NHL consider hiring women as game officials, specifically referees. And of course, we'll have all the news and notes from that week 50 years ago in the hockey world. Now, in recent weeks, we've been criticized on Twitter and in private messages and even emails about how some people feel we've disrespected ancient hockey writer Stan Fischler. In some of my tweets and remarks in the podcast, I, I must admit, uh, I haven't been a fan of Stan since way back in the in the uh, 60s and 70s. And uh, when I went to journalism school way back in the 1970s, one of my professors held Stan up, along with other sports writers of the day, as not being what good journalists should aspire to be. But this isn't about Stan Fischler, uh, so all you Stan fans can stand down on this one. This past week, as I record this, Stan put out a tweet that one day a woman will referee in the National Hockey League. This is one thing that Stan and I wholeheartedly agree on. I not only think that a woman will officiate games in the NHL, I firmly believe they should be refereeing the majority of National Hockey League games. And I'll explain why right here. It's not really all that complicated. There are some other very highly respected and veteran hockey writers who've already put out this uh, hypothesis out there. I just happen to agree with them. 
I haven't seen anyone outline the particular reasons I'm I'm going to put out here for taking this position, but that's only because there seems to be a reticence among hockey reporters to criticize the fine men who officiate NHL games. And believe me, they are good guys, and they're doing a thankless job. After spending 30 years as a police officer, investigator, uh, I kind of know the feeling you get when you're refereeing and no one likes what you're doing. This isn't really a criticism of the NHL referees. I don't want to give anyone the impression that NHL officials are dishonest, intentionally biased, unintelligent, or bad people. That is certainly not the case. It's just that if you really watch the games closely, and I mean frame by frame closely, and I've done that, you can observe that they just aren't up to the job of policing and managing the best hockey players on the planet. Now, I've gone into reasons for this previously. Today's officials, as I've said before, are pretty well all failed players. They all started out aspiring to be great hockey players, didn't we all, when we started playing the game? And for various reasons, they couldn't make it as players. One of the most common reasons for this is that all of them, despite being physically gifted, capable performers at a high level, just look at the NHL referees. They're all great skaters, strong and fast, and they never seem to tire for being on the ice for 60 minutes or more a night. The reason that these guys usually don't make it is because they don't have that innate instinct for the game. Whatever it is that enables the best hockey players to think and perceive the game at a level that makes them elite. It's not the present referee's faults for this. It's just who they are. Nothing wrong with that. Unless you're being asked to officiate a sport at which you are not mentally capable of keeping up with the play. And by the way, there are of course exceptions to this rule, but those truly able to keep up and make decisions at a level commensurate with the speed and skill at which today's game is played are few and far between. So how do we fix this? Where are we going to find people who can think the game quickly enough to be able to manage the best players in the world? It's really a tall order, but I'm here to tell you that those people are already out there in the hockey world and, if willing, should undergo some basic training and be hired to officiate NHL games as soon as it's practical. So I know you're going to ask, and I'm going to tell you, who are these people that are lurking somewhere in the sidelines uh, that could be the magic bullet answer to quality officiating in the top major hockey league in the world? These people are the top women hockey players in the world. If you've watched women's hockey, and I've watched quite a few games, you know it's a great game. It's not all that much different from the men's game at the highest levels. Not that much different at all. Of course, the women are restrained by the physical limitations that nature has uh, put upon them, but the training and conditioning are getting more advanced all the time, and women athletes have made great strides in the last few years, and I dare say a few of them are uh, approaching a level at which they could compete in the National Hockey League. One thing, however, has become abundantly clear to me as I watch the games. 
the best women players are completely capable of thinking the game just as well as their male counterparts. And sometimes I think even better than the men. And there are many reasons for that, I'm sure. As the training methods and availability of training and playing time become greater for women, and that's getting better all the time, more and more elite female players are sure to appear. The problem right now for women players is they can't possibly make the same amount of money as the men. It's not fair, but it's the reality of the world in which we live. I don't like it, but it's a fact right now. The women don't make enough money. In fact, elite women players don't come close to making what NHL referees make these days. And yet these elite women players are entirely capable of thinking the game at the highest levels. And I think thinking the game higher than major league officials do. These women are not failed players. They are the the elites in their particular area of the sport. And if it were just a mental game, they would be equal to the men in every other way. So if the elite women players were willing, wouldn't it make sense to give them a shot at officiating NHL games? What is the worst that could happen? I'm sure that given the opportunity, women can and will take officiating to the level at which it must rise to keep up with the evolution of our great game. Now, I'm not talking about women being linesmen. The linesmen have a a completely different job than the game referees. They have to physically restrain these big guys. But I'm sure in due time, there are women who will even be capable of performing that function as well. Now, this time of year always seems to get me down. It it feels like to me that as we get into February, we're entering the dog days of the NHL season. Now, if you're a baseball fan, and a lot of hockey fans are baseball fans, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Those days that in baseball, uh, it seems like it's a very dead time in in August. Uh, That time that comes before the stretch drive for the playoffs, where the grind of a long schedule seems to wear down the players, the coaches, the officials, and even the fans for that matter. But there's still some news to talk about this week, uh, 50 years ago, and we'll get into it now. And the first thing uh, we're going to discuss is a poll that ran in the very popular hockey magazine, Hockey Pictorial. And that's a, that's a magazine I subscribe to. When I was about 11 years old, I discovered it and my parents bought me a description and I took it for quite a few years by mail, uh, breathlessly waiting every month for uh, that issue to arrive. Now, the story I'm talking about in uh, this month's issue that ran 50 years ago was a poll that was uh, supposed to have been taken by the magazine among NHL players asking asking them to rate the best defensive defenseman in the National Hockey League. And the results were pretty surprising, at least to me. And Kevin Walsh of the Boston Globe was a fellow who noticed this article as well at that time, and he published the results. I'm going to give you a list of the top 10 defensive rear guards in the NHL as were voted by NHL players. Number one, although I don't think you could really rate him this way on his play in the 1969-70 season, 
Tim Horton of Toronto, Terry Harper of Montreal Canadiens, really, Terry Harper of Montreal, voted number two, a legitimate choice, Al Arbor of the Blues, number three. Al's game was all about defense and nothing else, and he was a master at blocking shots. Surprising number four, Leo Boyvin of the Minnesota North Stars. Now, like uh, Horton, I think Boyvin was voted to this higher position. Simply on reputation, Leo is right near the end of his career at this point with the North Stars. Number five, another veteran, Bobby Bond of Detroit. And a surprising number six, Carl Brewer coming out of uh, a self-imposed exile from hockey, at least NHL hockey, with the Red Wings this year. No more for his finesse and playmaking abilities. Brewer was regarded as the sixth best defensive defenseman in the NHL. Number seven, Ted Green of the Bruins. Although Ted hasn't played in this season at all because of that fractured skull, suffered in the awful stick-swinging duel in training camp. Number eight, Brad Park of the New York Rangers, a youngster quickly making a name for himself in the NHL. And of course, there's a name we haven't heard yet. And that's where number nine comes in. And they rank Bobby Orr of the Boston Bruins. Number 10 of the rather thug-like Ted Harris, Montreal Canadiens. Now, Kevin Walsh says in his article, and I don't disagree. This is typical of a ridiculous campaign around the NHL to question Bobby Orr's right to the Norris Trophy, mainly because he's such a wonderful offensive asset for the Bruins. Walsh quotes stats that were available in 1970, mainly the, the plus-minus numbers that were considered advanced analytics at that time. And he goes into great detail on how Orr's superior numbers, better than any other defenseman in the NHL, are calculated. He points out that the next closest rear guard to Orr in the plus minus sheets aren't even listed on the above list of 10, save for Brad Park, who finished eighth, just ahead of Orr. Kevin's point, and a position with which I concurred then and now, with the excellent hindsight that his history affords us, I even I even agree even more enthusiastically, is that Orr is the only choice for the Norris Trophy. And he is, in 1970, setting standards which may never be equaled. Of course, looking back from 50 years ahead, we can say that. Kevin was saying it then and he was right. Bobby Orr, at the time, was not only changing the way defenses played, he literally changed the game of hockey and much for the better. And by the way, Stan Fischler, I always seem to talk about Stan, and really, I don't like to rag on him. I'll try and get anybody who's got some kind of controversial views that we come across. But this week, Stan also must have been looking at the plus-minus numbers around the NHL, and he wrote in a column special, special, to the Toronto Star, that the man with the top plus-minus figure in this uh, NHL season of 1969-70 at plus 48 was a New York Rangers left winger Dave Ballone. Stan says that Ballone definitely is because of the plus minus stat the best two-way player in the NHL right now better than Bobby Orr better than anyone else he is the best all-round hockey player 
skating today, according to Stan Fischler. Think about that for a moment. Dave Ballone was a good hockey player. Pretty good guy, too. Had some awful physical limitations that uh, shortened his career. But I don't think anybody would have traded Bobby Orr for Dave Ballone. Uh, Stan, by the way, in this week's Sporting News, had his uh, each week yays and boos. Uh, Stan said yay to Doug Harvey for his upteenth comeback to the Los Angeles Kings, a comeback that never did happen. And he said boo to the Vancouver entry for not making a contract offer to Cornell University coach Ned Harkness. And uh, we all know how that worked out when Ned eventually went to work for Detroit. Toronto forward Britt Selby spent a day in hospital undergoing a brain scan and x-rays to determine if he had serious head injuries that would have caused his memory loss in Sunday's wild game that uh, resulted in a bench-clearing brawl in Boston. Uh, Britt forgot a big part of Sunday's 7-6 Bruins win. He took part in the 36-player battle scene when both benches emptied, and he suffered an extremely bloody nose, and in fact, it was bleeding profusely while he sat out a five-minute fighting major. Later, after the game, Britt said he couldn't remember the brawl or anything about it. Britt told uh, Red Burnett, I believe it was, of the Toronto Star, that the last thing I remembered was Jim Harrison scoring and Bobby Orr checking me into the boards, and that happened at 9.07 of the third period. Selby's bout with John McKenzie took place about five minutes later. All Selby knew after the game was he had a painful headache and he entered a Toronto hospital as soon as the Leafs got back from Boston. Looks like Brett's going to be okay, but that's a pretty scary thing. They did determine that he did have a concussion, and for a change, nobody said it was a mild concussion. Now, here is an absolutely goofy story that comes out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the Western Canadian Junior Hockey League. The Winnipeg Jets of that junior league apparently have signed Craig Redmond to a five-game tryout. Now, this normally wouldn't be uh, news of anything, except that Craig Redmond is four years old, lives in Kamloops, B.C. A statement from the Jets team says the youngster will be in their lineup after watching Winnipeg battle Flin Flon in a Friday game. He was there watching the game, and they said the kid's going to play for them a little later. At least he'll be in the lineup. Now, for two years, Craig's father, Harry Redmond of Kamloops, has been fostering his son's love of hockey by renting ice time in a Kamloops arena twice a week for practice so the kid can skate all on his own. You see, minor hockey officials have turned thumbs down on Craig playing organized hockey. They say the kid is just too young. Uh, Redmond said, we don't want people to think we're pushing him, but we really feel Craig is ready to play organized hockey and holding him back may prove to be damaging. More damaging than have him suit up with young men at the age of four. Jeez. Well, a couple days later, the team backed off on the report, saying the idea was all, quote, 
a mistake, a mistake that they were allowed to have themselves quoted for in a previous news story we reported on. Now, maybe these guys have heard of a nine-year-old whizzing around the ice in Brantford, Ontario, some kid named Gretzky or something like that. Uh, He's gaining some notoriety for his play, but he's nine years old, and he's playing with kids his age or maybe a couple years older. But a four-year-old? Jeez, you don't know about some parents. This is the kind of stuff that makes me crazy in these days when kids or parents are pushing their kids. But... uh, The Jets, although they backed off saying the boy won't play for them, they did want to give this some semblance of credibility by saying that Craig will appear at a Jets game between periods of Sunday to show off his skills. You could say the circus is coming to town in Winnipeg. Here's some news, uh, health news that is, on Toronto Maple Leafs assistant general manager Kane Clancy, one of the most beloved figures in Toronto sports. King went into a Toronto hospital last week, uh, suffering from some severe symptoms of his diabetes, and he'd lost uh, about 15 pounds. Good news is, King is on the mend. He's regained about 11 pounds of the weight he lost. He expects to be released from medical custody, as he puts it, and he'll be back at Maple Leaf Gardens, hopefully by the beginning of next week. That's good news to have King Clancy back around the Maple Leafs. Anywhere around hockey, for that matter. What a great guy he is. Montreal Gazette hockey writer Pat Curran says that the joke might be on Gump Worsley for his unwise, according to Pat, stand against Montreal Canadiens management over being requested to report to Montreal's American Hockey League farm team, the Voyageurs. Now, Gumper who's known for his quick one-liners and ability to tell comedic stories, has virtually disappeared from the news over in Montreal over the past couple weeks. And Curran writes that Gump is likely through as a player unless he can find an expansion team to take a chance on him. Pat's talking about Buffalo or Vancouver next spring when they do, or summer I guess it'll be, when they do the expansion draft. But Pat figures Gump, has got to have deep regrets for taking a stand on not going to the minors because uh, Pat figures he's losing a ton of money. Uh, Gump, for his part, is sticking by his guns, and there has been some talk that the Canadians may give another NHL team uh, the option of speaking to Gump about a contract and whether he would play for the team if he were traded. No word on which team that is yet, but uh, there's got to be a team out there that can use a goaltender of Gump Worsley's status for sure. The Philadelphia Flyers have had a local service club pick their player of the month in there uh, for the three years of their short existence. But for the first time for the month of January, dual winners were announced. And it's a unique pair of dual winners. Brothers Larry and Wayne Hillman, both acquired by the Flyers in the offseason, have been named the Flyers' Dual Players of the Month. And congratulations to Larry and Wayne, who for the first time in their hockey careers are getting to play together on the Flyers. Flyers General Manager Keith Allen said that when we acquired the Hillmans last summer, 
the fans wanted to know why we're doing it, since uh, the team had been pretty strong defensively anyway. Keith says the Hillmans have made great contributions to this team, and you can't forget Larry was on five or six Stanley Cup winners, according to Keith, and he gives 100% all the time, and Wayne is one of the hardest body checkers in the NHL, and they figured that both of them are going to be with the Flyers for a long, long time. Wayne had this reaction to the uh, award. He said, I hope we'll stay here longer than we did in Minnesota. I've been connected with nine of the 12 NHL teams in 15 years of hockey, says Larry. I should say the Flyers aren't too far away from fielding a Stanley Cup winner. We have that same winning combination that Toronto and Montreal had. Well, they weren't too far away, at least compared to teams like the Maple Leafs. It wasn't going to take the Flyers. 50 years to win another Stanley Cup. The St. Louis Blues have recalled defenseman Billy Plager from the American Hockey League Buffalo Bisons. That gives the Blues three players in the lineup with the last name of Plager, all brothers from Kirkland Lake, Ontario. And if you know this uh, gang, you understand that things are going to be pretty interesting around the St. Louis club, both on and off the ice. Jack Norris is a goaltender with the Montreal Voyagers of the American Hockey League. Now, you remember Jack as one of the players that the Chicago Blackhawks acquired in that huge May 1967 trade that sent Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, and Fred Stanfield to the Boston Bruins. Uh, Jack eventually ended up in the Montreal organization, and he may become... The first professional goalie, at least the first professional goalie we've been able to find, to use a curved goalie stick. With uh, curved sticks being quite in vogue in the NHL in 1970, uh, Norris told Ted Damata of the Chicago Tribune that he's been experimenting with a banana blade for his goaltending twig, and he finds he controls the puck better than with the straight-bladed stick, and he plans on using it in the game. I wonder if the NHL will limit curve on goalie sticks the way they did player sticks. Who's going to get hurt by... A curve by a shot from a curved goalie stick. Uh, now nobody that we know of, but anyway, it's kind of a neat, interesting piece. Uh, if we find out that Jack did use a curved blade, we'll let you know. By the way, Norris is getting more playing time with the Voyagers this uh, these days, and the reason is that youngster Phil Mir who had been the number one netminder with the uh, AHL club, has been called up to Montreal because of the absence of Gump Worsley, who we just spoke about. It seems that Rogi Vashan has been struggling a bit lately, and he's overworked anyway with the Gumper out of the lineup. So Mir is going to get a lot more playing time with the Canadians, and we'll see what the kids can do. The Canadians want to see what Mir can do as well, because they don't want to lose him in an expansion draft to the new Vancouver or Buffalo teams. The Bruins' Derek Sanderson, who's been out since about uh, the 3rd of January with that bad hip or whatever it was, seems there were a multitude of stories and opinions on what kept Derek out. Most of them probably untrue. Uh, Derek returned to the Boston lineup this week, and while he was a little slow afoot, uh, he was still as tenacious as ever, and it won't be long before he gets himself into top uh, top playing condition. 
Leafs veteran goalie Johnny Bauer told a sports celebrity dinner in Toronto this week that he still hopes to play once more with the Maple Leafs this season. Problem is, Johnny's injured knee is still an issue. Uh, he isn't capable of playing his uh, normal level, level yet. In fact, he said he can't even turn to the right right now. And so he's got to stay out until it's 100%. And at age 45, uh, recovering from these kinds of injuries takes a little bit longer. Here's hope we get to see Johnny at least one more time before he finally hangs up his skates. Minnesota North Stars were hit with injuries this week as well with center Walter McKechnie and defensemen Barry Gibbs and Lou Nanny all missing time with a litany of injuries. Uh, then later in the week, backup goalie Ken Broderick was struck by a puck in practice that caused a gash over his right eye that required nine stitches. And that's even though Ken was wearing a mask. Uh, these injuries got Marshall Johnson and Tom Polonic into the Minnesota lineup for a few games. Broderick maintained his position in the lineup, but was relegated to a backup role to regular netminder Cesar Maniego. Now, you got to feel sorry for a young fellow by the name of Claude Hardy. Claude's a goaltender. And he was picked up this week by the Rochester Americans of the American Hockey League. Now, if Claude's name sounds familiar to you, it's because he spent uh, the entire first third of the NHL season with the Los Angeles Kings. He made a notation for himself in the annals of hockey history by spending this amount of time with the Kings without seeing even one minute of ice time. Claude was uh, the backup to the Kings regular netminder Jerry Desjardins and regular backup uh, Wayne Rutledge was injured with a bad thigh which required surgery in training camp. Hardy sat on the bench. Jerry Desjardins played every game until Rutledge was ready and then Claude was dispatched to the American Hockey League Springfield Kings. Problem there was Claude sat on the bench there as well and didn't get any playing time. So finally, the uh, Kings allowed to uh, send Claude to the Rochester Americans, where, you guessed it, he's going to be back up to regular netminder Bob Wooden, firmly entrenched as the Americans' number one goaltender. The reason that opening came uh, available was because Al Miller, a well-respected veteran who's played hockey coast-to-coast in North American minor leagues, has now been sprung free from being a backup sitting on the bench to concentrate on his new career as a scout for the Rochester and ultimately Vancouver organizations. In a February 5th game, the Flyers lost to the Bruins by a 5-1 score, and really, the game wasn't even as close as that score would indicate, which is to say, it could have been a real blowout. Now, Jack Chevalier is the hockey writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he called the Flyers, quote, timid in that game. You can bet that that very apt description of the Philadelphia boys won't be lost on management and especially coach 
Vic Stasiak. Now, Stasiak, as we've reported, is already down on the more pacifist of his players, and he's sure to be going to general manager Keith Allen, demanding that the uh, team get him some guys who have a more disruptive influence, like, say, the big bad Bruins demonstrated in this game and the earlier game this week when they brawled with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Big bad flyers? Broad Street Bullies? That couldn't be too far off if Vic Stasiak gets his way. St. Louis Blues coach Scotty Bowman showed that a two-goalie system works very well in the NHL uh, with the outstanding success he had with Glenn Hall and Jacques Plante. Now, Scotty's faced with the task of trying to make a three-goalie system work. Scotty picked up Ernie Wakely in the offseason from Montreal to have his insurance in case anything happened to Hall or Plant. And when Hall retired in the fall, at least for part of the season, getting Wakely proved to be a good move. Ernie's uh, proven he can play in the NHL. Scotty uh, has Hall back with the team and uh, he wants to play Glenn two out of every three games to get him in shape for the playoffs. Where's that leave Jacques Plant and Ernie Wakely? Scotty himself says three goalies are too many to make this kind of system work. Could he be considering uh, trading a goalkeeper? I wonder if Scotty would deal Jacques Plant. Now, Plant's had a sore knee since the All-Star game, but he's ready to play and he wants to get in there. Wakely, a younger guy, although not all that young, wants to play as much as he can, and Glenn Hall wants to earn his money, and he's going to be playing the bulk of the games, at least for the next few weeks. We'll have to stay tuned to this and see what happens as the trade deadline approaches in early March. Punch Imlach in his syndicated column in the Toronto Telegram and other papers this week belittled the lawsuit that baseball player Kurt Flood filed against his sports reserve clause, saying that the regulation is necessary to allow management to operate successfully in hockey. Here's Punch's reasoning for the clause's necessity. Punch says if the reserve clause didn't exist, why would Buffalo and Vancouver pay $6 million for a franchise in the NHL? They could offer 18 players hundred grand each for a total of $1.8 million and probably have the best teams in hockey while they save themselves $4,200,000. Punch feels, fails to realize that in order to get into the NHL, Buffalo and Vancouver would have to pay the league whatever the league wants. They don't have the right to just say, we're buying 18 players for whatever price we want to pay. Geez, Punch, you're smarter than that, I think. Oh, speaking of baseball and Kurt Flood uh, and changing the game, uh, one thing that's been consistent through the history of the sport of baseball is how the geometry has been consistent since the beginning of the game. Now, here in February of 1920, some earnest baseball people suggested messing with that perfect formula. In an effort to increase baseball's at 1970s time waning offense, it was suggested that the foul lines be flared outward from the center of the field to increase the area where fly balls can fall in fair territory. The proposal would see flared lines towards the stands 
on the first and third base sides by three degrees beyond each base to the outfield fence. Now, this experiment, or this proposal, I should say, will be experimented with in the Gulf Coast Rookie League this year, and we'll see if the modification, uh, which starts this spring, has a, the effect that the baseball brains seem to want it to have. Seems like a uh, fake solution to me. But then again, they might even juice the balls this year. We're hearing that that could be a possibility as well. We'll see how that all goes. Now, our final news item this week, uh, well, it's a fairly big one, I think, uh, especially if you are a fan of the new NHL Vancouver team. And, and it requires a little bit more of a deep dive into this one, not just a note. Uh, the expansion Vancouver Canucks uh, haven't yet named the man who's going to run their hockey operations. And many, including some Vancouver hockey scribes, are still clamoring for Joe Crozier to get that position. Fans are calling the Canucks switchboards. They're sending letters to the editor. They're sending letters to the hockey team clamoring for Crozier to be formally hired as a Canucks general manager. Well, this week, some news came out that might mean that Joe himself took himself out of the running for the job. Now, you'll remember in the past few years, it had been rumored that if and when the city of Vancouver was ever awarded an NHL franchise, then GM coach of the Punch Imlac of the Toronto Maple Leafs was the odds-on favorite to become the head of uh, any new NHL team in Vancouver. Imlac was even said to own stock in the Western Hockey League Canucks, and this was found out over the past few months to be completely true. It was even thought that when the NHL expanded in 1967, and Vancouver was thought to be a front runner at the time, that Punch would partner with uh, broadcaster Foster Hewitt to run that Vancouver franchise. It's also well known to most hockey fans that Joe Crozier, who, as we mentioned, is the GM coach of the Western Hockey League Canucks and Punch are very good friends, uh, an association that, in fact, began many years ago when Imlac was running a hockey team in Quebec City and Joe was one of his players. Joe worked for Punch running Toronto's farm team in Rochester, New York for many years as well. And uh, I think they even cooked up that deal by which the Rochester farm team was sold by the Maple Leafs to folks in Rochester with Joe becoming a part owner of that club. Well, there have been lots of stories circulating since Imlac was fired last spring by Toronto that uh, had George Imlac being offered numerous jobs by several National Hockey League teams. Now, Imlac has been consistent in saying he always turned the jobs down because he didn't want to jeopardize his payout on his contract from the Maple Leafs. And now those payouts were to finish up in December of 1969, just passed. Well, as it turns out, according to both Vancouver newspapers and other uh, reports from around the National Hockey League, Punch has all along been under some sort of contract to the Vancouver operation. He's been hired, according to these reports, by his old buddy Crozier to do scouting and other consulting for the prospective NHL franchise. And George was paid a cool 25 G's to do so. And that's a lot more than most NHL scouts, who most of the time aren't full-time like Imlac wasn't, 
That's a lot more than they're given to do their jobs. Now, the problem with all this is that Joe Crozier made this hire, according to the reports, without the knowledge or permission of the board of directors of the Vancouver Hockey Operation. The contract was apparently kept secret and was received by the new owners, Metacor, when they purchased the Canucks on December 22nd. The pact was given to Metacor separately from other documents pertaining to the sale, and along with it was Imlac's resignation. Uh, this was most completely recorded by Eric Westhead of the Vancouver province, and he's one who furnishes us all these uh, details. Now, Cyrus McLean and Coley Hall were members of the Canucks Board of Directors, probably the two most prominent members. They both said that Crozier signed Imlac in August of 1969, uh, and Medicor confirmed that date, by the way. And the deal was made without the knowledge or authorization of the board. And when you spend twenty-five grand uh, in 1970, that's a lot of money. The board especially for a minor league operation, would want to know. They claim that they had no idea that Imlac was on the payroll until late December, just before the sale became official. Of course, Imlac resigned, and three weeks later, he was hired by Vancouver's expansion rival, Buffalo, uh, to run the hockey operation there. Now, Crozier denies the version of events presented by Coley Hall and Cy McLean. Joe said that the directors knew full well that Imlac had been hired. Uh, when asked why Imlac's employment was not made public, Joe said that he just had not considered this to be the public's business at that time. Joe maintains he discussed the matter with McLean and Hall, and it was suggested although just Joe doesn't say by whom, that Imlac be hired. Crozier issued a long and very detailed statement about Imlac's hiring, the duties he performed, and how valuable he had been to the Canucks organization. Now, Hall is adamant that no such decision was taken, and in fact, when Imlac's name came up for discussion in the talks they uh, had as a matter of course with Crozier, both Hall and McLean advised Joe that no such hire could be considered at the time that it came up. And this was probably sometime before August. For their part, the Metacor folks have been caught up in the middle of what's basically a family squabble over which the Metacor folks, they don't have any control. They're not the least bit concerned about what happened with the team before December 22nd, except for one, maybe not so small detail. Uh, small detail maybe to them, not small detail to Joe Crozier. The Metacore folks are inclined to believe the Canucks directors over Joe Crozier in this dispute. And if they in fact do, then what Crozier may have pulled off with his old friend Punch constitutes rank insubordination to the uh, board of directors as far as Metacore is concerned. And if someone who would pull off something like this is not likely the kind of person the Metacore people want determining the direction of a fledgling National Hockey League franchise. So this doesn't look good at all for Joe Crozier 
and Imlac himself could probably see the writing on the wall when he declared that if Metacore doesn't want Joe Crozier, he'll definitely hire him for Buffalo. It probably also explains why Metacore President Tom Scallon said that under no circumstances is he's going to follow up on a tampering charge with Imlac. A new NHL franchise won't need this type of distraction before it even gets off the ground, and uh, it's probably the removal of one very large headache that Scallon has to deal with. One thing's a sure bet, though, if Imlac does reach out and hire his old friend Joe, Seymour and Nordy Knox are going to know about it right down to the last detail. So while we don't have a formal personality of the week this week, this last segment is basically getting two for one uh, in what the Vancouver writers were extolling as the Canucks hanging out all their dirty linen online for the NHL to see. And we're seeing just uh, what a mess Vancouver might turn out to be. If they they keep operating like this, they might not ever win a Stanley Cup. So what kind of information have we gleaned? From this week's show, well, we learn that there's some people who think, possibly rightly show, that there's a concerted effort by some around the NHL, could it be a conspiracy, to delegitimize Bobby Orr's obvious claim to the Norris Trophy as the NHL's best defenseman. We learned that if you're going to make secret deals and you want to advance within a company, It's best not to make secret deals. And we learned that it is very likely that women will referee in the NHL, hopefully sooner rather than later. And at least in the view of this corner, that would be a very, very good idea. We'll return next week with another 50-year trip back in time to 1970. Some of the stories we're working on for next week include Scotty Bowman shaking up the first place in the Western Division, St. Louis Blues. We'll learn about a season-ending freak injury to an NHL goaltender, and we'll learn that a baseball superstar becomes a central figure in a gambling investigation. And could there be a hockey connection? The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced each week by Andy Cole. Our introduction music is by the Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage. And if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, you got to take advantage of it. They put on a great high energy show. Other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at our sponsor, newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey 50 Years, and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We also have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and of course, you can get the podcast through your favorite podcast app and the Apple and Google podcast stores and through Spotify. Another very worthwhile podcast I highly recommend is the Let's Write a Song podcast hosted 
by Andy Cole. Each week, Andy and a special guest engage in some great conversation and also write a song which they performed at the end of the session. The interesting part of all this is not all the guests are musicians and the results of what they come up with are really quite unique and very entertaining. You should give it a listen. Thanks everyone to tune into our show each week. We enjoy bringing this to you and we have some exciting additions in the works soon to be announced. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the